want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flat, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, but hearts get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Oh, you know, it could be worse. It could could be so much worse (laughs) as evidenced by so many things all over the world. Yeah. Just be thankful for what you got, people. That is that is very true. Uh, it, It is American Thanksgiving week, so I'm focusing on that rather than other things. At the end of the podcast, we're talking with Noel Kirkpatrick from TV.com about Over the Garden Wall, so hopefully you guys have had a chance to catch up with that this week. Um, a lot of fun talking with Noel, as ever. Uh, we heard from you guys this week. Uh, we had our end of the year, I threw out like one of the shows I should be watching. Um, Brian says, Utopia, love, hate, and I've also heard from Damien, um, one of the, this is our design listeners. Uh, I've got a lengthy email from him. Uh, uh, pitching that, you know, I should really be watching Love Hate. So now I'm even more intrigued about that because I know, Brian, you've been talking about it for a while. Um, Brian also suggests uh, Peaky Blinders and The Fall. Also curious, but why no Homeland? Uh, Simon, why no Homeland? Why no Homeland? Um, ah, here's the thing there's like a critical meme going around that Homeland is good again. I love when these things happen, by the way. Like, The Walking Dead is good again. Homeland is good again. Like, th- things that, I, I mean, should be. Obvious to every, I don't know, like the, the way these opinions just sort of become a thing that everyone suddenly now has to write about, I find hilarious. But I, even if Homeland is better, which I believe that it is, uh, based on things I've been reading, it seems like they're choosing to focus on their strengths and going with it. At this point of time in my life, I don't particularly care about the stories that Homeland is choosing to push. It's just not something that I care to see dramatized in that particular way right now. Everyone involved is very talented, but uh, I got to prioritize on some other stuff right now. Yeah, there's a lot of TV on right now. There's a lot of good TV on. And even if Homeland is good again, I'm not hearing it's the best it's ever been. I'm not hearing you got to watch this. I'm hearing more if you are watching it. Hey, it's good, right? Um, And I just don't. I don't miss it even a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between <laughs> it's it's uh, it's no longer insulting us the way that it did for a season and a half fairly actively uh, versus it's must see television. And I I'm I may catch up with it at some point, but just right now, it's I'm not going to get into the politics of it all. But not something I need right now. There's a lot of shows on Sundays, and we talk also about that. several of them on the podcast. So uh, while, yeah, I'm kind of like you, I'm not opposed to catching up with it. Uh, I'm not certainly going to make the time right now to, to stay current. Um, so that's why. That's why no Homeland. Uh, James says, it's certainly not the best of 2014, but I've really enjoyed faking it. A to Z and selfie. Kristen Milioti is adorable. Agreed, sir. Uh, Carl says, Defiance and The 100 are really entertaining and well-written. I think they will make my top 10. My tops are still Rectify, The Americans, Fargo, and Orange is the New Black for drama and Enlisted for best show ever. 
I'm that's my inflection. I don't know if that's his inflection on that. But uh, these are all excellent, very interesting picks. And I'm glad to see another voice telling me to watch the hundred. I feel like that's going to have to be my next catch up, Simon, because I'm just hearing all this buzz about the hundred. Are you intrigued at all? I wasn't until I heard specific people uh, freaking out about it. And now, unfortunately, I am intrigued. I'm not going to have time to watch any of it until mid-December. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I could, I could see that happening. And that's that's something considering I was not at all intrigued by the premise. Yeah, and I was not at all intrigued by the pilot that I saw. Um, and of course, pilots, we talk about that all the time. Uh, a show can easily grow quite a bit from its pilot. But I'm now officially intrigued. So hopefully come in at some point next year. I'll be all caught up on that and I can give my thoughts. Um, so our question of the week was about shipping. We got one answer about shipping. Um, <laughs> I got to say, I'm a little... Not what we had in mind. I'm a little disappointed, guys. Uh, but the answer we did get from Carl was entertaining. He says, I would ship Jax Teller from Sons of Anarchy and Sue Heck from The Middle, Eternal Optimism, and The Reaper. Uh, I would also love Stephen Amell and Will Arnett, uh, just so we could get bow and arrow, which is pretty, pretty great. Um, Dan did say, I was talking about, um, The Flash this week and how Caitlin calls out Barry for being super creepy about Iris. Like, he's in, meeting her in his flash costume and so she doesn't know it's him but he knows it's her and all that he's like she, she calls him out on being super creepy and uh, i was talking about that on twitter and dan says uh, i ship th- i ship it is that what the kids call it shipping i don't know where they're being shipped <laughs> to but i thought that was pretty fun um and we have a shipper simon mirthbound is officially a kate and simon shipper and that is it i think that means we win the internet right um does it I, we either we win or trophy? we lose. I don't know. Does the trophy have monetary value? That's all <laughs> I can really think about right now. <laughs> I just thought that was entertaining. Brian says, I just started a touch of cloth. Haven't left this hard since Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. So another voice. Um, and he said, thanks, Simon, for recommending it. Uh, adding to, to the praise for that one. Still haven't caught up with it. Uh, Jason Paul says, are you watching Madam Secretary? The relationship between the McCords is refreshingly adult. Also enjoying the season's web therapy. And no, well, I did like what I saw of Madam Secretary. Secretary. I haven't gotten back to it because, again, Sundays. What about you, Simon? Uh, every time, like, I, I actually probably catch half an episode of Madam Secretary every week because I'm waiting for The Good Wife to happen. Uh, and I know that's not uh, a serious, critical way to watch a TV show, but it always just strikes me as the tasteful but really blandly written uh, White House cousin of The Good Wife. And and I don't it's, and that makes it sound better than it is. <laughs> Fair enough. What about web therapy? Uh, I've only seen a couple episodes and not this season. Um, I it's it's my preferred Lisa Kudrow vehicle, but uh, I I haven't caught up with it recently. Fair enough. Um, let's see. Mario, our last comment here uh, wants to know for watching the newsroom, the missing, and the game. Um, and of course, obviously, we're talking about. The newsroom on the podcast. So yes, Mario, we'll talk about it. You know, this week as well. This week's episode, um, the missing. I have seen the first five, so I'm actually ahead on that one. I will probably make time to finish it out when it once the the airing catches up with the screeners that I got and um, the game. I have not started. Uh, what about you, Simon? Are you are you watching any of the missing or the game? Uh, probably not. There's just too much. Too yeah. much to catch up on and too much that's still on. 
Uh, I don't even know how I'm feeling about watching The Fall again. Like, I like the first season, but I don't know how I feel about watching a second. Yeah, especially because it's coming out on Netflix in January, which is going to be insane. January is going to be fucking apocalypse month. Yeah, which is why our best of the year shows, normally we kind of do it through Christmas and New Year's, like and into the, the new year. That is not happening this year. It will be happening in December <laughs> because we need to have new episode like covering the new stuff that's going on starting right away in uh in january so the, the last two weeks of the last two tuesdays of december when our end of year shows are going to be this time um but yeah All right, what what show are you most looking forward to in january oh what the americans obviously the fact that it's back earlier this year is delightful yeah i'm i'm i wish i could say justified but i'm still a little like leery about it because of last season <sighs> We should still be excited about Justified. Come on, they get to have an off-season. They had four amazing seasons in a row. <sighs> okay. And they've got Sam Elliott and Garrett Delahunt. That's worth something, I'm right? just a little nervous, that's all. I just... I'm nervous, too, I'm, but I'm still excited. Okay. Well, we'll <laughs> we should get into our Week in TV. It's a full Week in TV. Um, so we'll we'll wrap up the comments there. But thank you guys so much, as ever, for, for writing and, uh, and tweeting and all of that stuff. We do very much appreciate hearing from y'all so um now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in comedy This week in comedy, uh, Adventure Time is back, so that's very exciting. Uh, everything's Jake, and then we'll talk a little Key and Peel, Aerobics Meltdown, Bob's Burgers, Dawn of the Peck, and of course, Jane the Virgin, Chapter 6, and because we're recording later this week, Chapter 7, so the episode from last night as we record. Uh, but first up, Adventure Time, we're getting an episode, I think, every day this week. I don't know what's prompting this, you know, four-night event, five-night event, but I'm, I'm stoked. What did you think of, of Everything's Jake? I was honestly sort of hoping that because we were getting four episodes this week that it meant we were going to get a crazy four-parter, which it doesn't seem like is what's happening, which is a little bit sad. But, you know, four completely different episodes is almost as fun. Uh, I feel like the reason this episode happened is because people were complaining, oh, there's not enough Finn and Jake this season. And so someone was like, oh, well, then let's have an episode where literally everything on the screen is Jake. And then no one will ever be able to complain again. But personally, uh, I couldn't get past the the Futurama-ness. Uh, because w we already have Joe DiMaggio on this show. But then he shows up using his Bender voice. And... Billy West, um, of course, who also voiced Fry. And so he does his Fry voice and he does his Farnsworth voice for this. It's very much a Futurama crossover. Yeah, which was... Just I have, I don't like the idea of, of of Adventure Time doing crossovers. I like Adventure Time just being Adventure Time. Is that weird? No, I don't think it's weird. I mean, I I enjoyed it. I liked it as sort of like an, a, a response to the Simpsons Futurama crossover that happened. I haven't seen that one yet, but um, the notion of I mean, for me, because it isn't the characters and it's just the voice. If you have never seen Futurama, I don't know that 
it's going to bother you. If you have, I can see it being distracting like it was for you, Simon. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. I, for me, it was nice to hear those actors working together again. But uh, I certainly see where you're coming from. Uh, yeah. And also the, the whole notion of character goes on a journey for an episode and comes out and is a little bit sad about it at the end is also something they've done better before. Uh, as as you would know, based on where you are in your rewatch right now. <laughs> Pahoy is a recent episode from where I am in my in my uh, going through season five. Oh, Pahoy. Also, Bubble is another one. Uh, but that one ends on a happy note, a creepily happy note. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I like this one more than you did. I think I like the animation. Um, I thought they did a I think I thought they were creative with the use of color and everything and having everything be Jake. Uh, worked. I liked the Cthulhu shout out. I thought that was yeah, very that was entertaining. Definitely the best part of the episode. <laughs> it's like I'm eating spaghetti. Uh, but yeah, hopefully there'll be more episodes that we enjoy a bit more over the course of the week, and we'll talk about them next time. But let's move on for now to Key and Peel and the aerobics meltdown. We had Froyo, undercover cop guy. We had the kid slapping his uh, mom's boyfriend or fiance or something, and we had um, some other, a, couple, a few other ones as well. How, how did this episode go for you? We haven't talked about Key and Peele in a couple weeks. Uh, it was solid. Uh, there was nothing that I felt didn't work at all. I, I think that the there's a reason that the episode is named for the aerobics sketch, which is that that was one of their best ones in terms of uh, using cinematic language. to like the, the way that the aspect ratio was changing between the original aerobic exercise and then sort of expanding back out and coming back in whenever they would come in and out of that was great for the tonal shifts of that sketch didn't really have a great ending which is again sort of their eternal curse but there were some beats in there that were some of the funniest shit they've ever done (laughs) yeah i like that they start out and it's like oh they're doing that aerobics thing that's hilarious and then they take it to another place as well so that i was surprised by and i was glad um, they did. They, they did. It was entertaining, but yeah, I, th- I agree. I don't know that they knew where to quite go with it, and in the end, it that, didn't pay off. Was that Clint Howard with the cue cards? Yes, yes, it was. That was also yes. a delightful that was bit of really random. Yeah, and you just keep keep dancing. Every now and again, the cue card keep dancing was that really worked for me. Um, but yeah, certainly not the most memorable of the season. Um, let's move on to Bob's Burgers, Dawn of the Peck. One of their their Thanksgiving episodes. They've had a series of them in the past that have all been pretty entertaining. How did this one uh, rank for you? It had some really good moments. Uh, I love Bob's obsession with Donna Summer. Uh, I I, I fully support them using more pre-existing music. I know that's mean, but uh, it's it, it it. I feel like we we've we we may have. I feel like they should only be allotted a certain amount of original composition a year because they seem to get. They seem to spread that a little bit thin and wide over over the course of the season. Uh, more pre-existing music, please. And uh, I don't know, the kids got off some good one-liners, but overall, it, it didn't have the, the cohesion of some of their best Thanksgiving episodes. I enjoyed uh, um, Linda's running gear. That was pretty, like, her her enjoyment of the little bottles, the water bottles, as someone who has a belt with those little bottles on it, uh, that was entertaining to me. I thought it was pretty cute. And um, just Bob getting drunk and eventually having the conversation with the baster was fabulous. I love the use of the Albanani um, adagio to, to score that scene. It's a nice 
classical piece, but it's not as obvious as some other classical choices would have been. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the the episode as a whole. It wasn't, I don't think, one of their best holiday episodes, but the Bob portion of it was some of my favorite stuff that they've done in quite a while. So uh, way to go, Bob's Burgers. Another fun Thanksgiving episode. Uh, let's wrap up the week in comedy with Jane the Virgin, um, Chapter 6 and Chapter 7. So uh, the internet pretty much exploded uh, about Chapter 6. So I guess, shall we start there? Or do you want to talk about let's, these in tandem? Let's, let's let's start with six because I feel a little bit out of step on this one. Like it was a fine episode, but it had some problems for me that I haven't had in the past. Mm-hmm. Such as? Such as um, I feel like they're starting to get a little bit overboard with the intertitle stuff. Uh, like, especially like scenes when they're at the table and it's awkward and then it's like hashtag awkward dinner or whatever. Like, okay. No. Yeah, that's trying too hard. I absolutely agree. They do that in episode seven as well. Yeah, the the like the icon, the, the sort of the emoticon version of the of her problems with Raphael. I didn't need that either. Um, it was a little bit cute when they came back and they went away, but no, it's 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 too much. I feel like they they had a great balance with that stuff with the visual elements early on, and now they're kind of going overboard, uh, which is an issue for me. Mostly, though, like, there are just things in the sh- world of the show that I care about more than the love triangle. And so when they make headway on that uh, and everyone go- get- goes squee, I'm thinking more about other stuff like Jane's teaching job or Jane's life in general when it's not revolving around boys. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Uh, I, I really like the handling of the of Jane and Michael's uh, past and their, their situation in episode six, especially when I rewatched the episode, because the, when you're first watching it, or at least when I was first watching it, um, I, I did, didn't know that I bought her breaking up with Michael. It just seemed like it was such a little thing to, to end a potential marriage over. But when I was rewatching it, you know, it really did hit me that, He's lied to her just about every episode, and he was going to let her give a baby to a family that was totally screwed up when he should know how important it is to her. So it's just Michael putting himself over her each time that they, every episode in a really significant way. And that's understandable, but that's also, it's also understandable to be like, okay, this is the first time we've been tested with something that you significantly where we had different points of view about it. And it was really important to me. And you chose yourself over me when, if you're, if you're getting married, you should choose the other person over yourself. Um, so that, that being a really a strong indicator of there being problems or issues, like how does she know that she can trust him again, especially for a character who's as focused on honesty as, as Jane is. Um, so I thought they did a really good job with that. And I also love that they gave them that super romantic first um, first kiss and, and first encounter. I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that the the Michael and Jane kiss is way more romantic and and moving than than the Raphael one because the, the one at the end of the episode just feels so manufactured and over the top. It's very telenovela, which is what they're going for. Whereas the one with Michael feels real and substantive. Um, so I liked that even though they break up there, they do also show the reasons that she would want to stay with Michael too. Uh, yeah, I can concur with most of that. I just, I, I don't know, personally, when other people get hyped up, I start to get critical because that's just how my brain works. Um, but uh, to move on to the seventh episode, uh, I thought they did a really good job 
with because I mean I think anyone watching that sixth episode who had anything wrong with it would probably say well it's just it's weird that she's going straight for uh the other guy when she was just with this guy for two years and isn't that like insanely rash and this whole episode was like yes it is yeah and we're just completely gonna own it and she's got reasons to be rash and deal with it and so i like i really like that aspect uh Relio continues to be delightful uh, although maybe slightly more over the top than he needs to be, but just his his the look he's giving Zoe's new boyfriend at the door was just delightful. Yeah, that was pretty fun. I, I like I like that even though I mean I like them. It feels it feels organic that Zoe decides they should step away from their relationship and really let let Jane and Rogelio establish their their father daughter relationship more firmly before they you know experiment with getting back together um and that that does seem like it's wise it's also very convenient for plot dynamics as well um but i think they've done a good job of selling it and having random students father be a soccer star um, or football star depending on who you're talking to uh, that was a bit much for me that's a bit you know, contrived. I'll give you one of those, and they got their one with Rogelio. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to give yeah. you two, uh, but I do think I like the casting. I thought they had chemistry. It was very sweet. So we'll see where that goes. Um, I I need more Abuela in my life, though. She's kind of backburnered in these two episodes, and it would be nice to spend a little bit more time there uh, with her. What did you think of the stuff with the nuns? Um, you know, I I like the I like everything involving Jane at school. Um, I, I think we need more time with her just being a person rather than a person in a love triangle or whatever. Uh, I think that this episode, though, exposes how they're gonna make a full season out of this a little bit, and I'm, I have concerns about that. Like, the whole, the way, like, maybe five or six minutes of this episode is taken up with the Petra thing, and then we have Michael hooking up with the other detective. It's like, okay, now we're really starting to get out into areas that I'm not sure we're gonna care about. Well, I like the way that they do the stuff with Michael, uh, where it's like he's, you know, he's all broken up about about Jane um, and he sees the pictures of her out and everything and the stuff with Raph. And, and he's like, I haven't had sex in two years. <laughs> we assume. We assume. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was nice. And it was nice that they, that they didn't foreground that particular fact. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and then but... the, the, they didn't foreground any like UST with the two cops. And really, for me, it came out of nowhere. Uh, but I also bought it in the moment. So, uh, yeah, I thought that that worked. Yeah, I just I don't know without Jane around how much I really care about Michael. That's true. We'll. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't. I would be very surprised if there wasn't more back and forth love triangle stuff. And we'll see how the show can execute that. How did the Petra stuff work for you? Uh, it felt a little bit like. That stuff at the end of season two of Twin Peaks, when you're just starting to get into, like, character dynamics that come out of nowhere and that you don't particularly care about. <laughs> Maybe not that bad, but it just, it, you know, this whole notion of her developing a relationship with her captive or whatever, uh, I don't care about that. Yeah, I thought it was was fine. I I, th- I like the, um, the, I think the actress, I don't know have her name in front of me, um, but uh, I think she really is selling that performance and making the character way more likable than she should be. Um, so I give credit to the actress, certainly. Um, I, you know, the, the, the manipulating her captor into 
forging more of a bond with her. You know, that worked for me. I thought it made sense. It does show her to be a bit more um, uh, adept in this world than maybe she should be based on her other interactions. But if, you know, if you're going on the theory that her mom is in Rostro, then that kind of makes sense. Um, but it, you know, it could go a lot of different ways, certainly. Um, and again, the actress is making those scenes work a lot more than they should. So we'll see where it goes next. Any other thoughts on these episodes? Uh, I just, in the future, I would, I need more Jane at work and things like that. The, the normal life stuff interests me more than like Petra and her, uh, and you know, her old her ex-boyfriend cooking up schemes to destroy Raphael or whatever. It's like, uh, I don't, I don't know how much I care about that. Fair enough. Uh, well, what was your week in comedy? Um, obviously it's going to be Jane the Virgin, even though I've got some issues with it. Yeah. The Jane the Virgin award still goes to Jane the Virgin. Um, we'll see uh, how many more. I'm not sure how many more there are this year before it goes on hiatus or if it is going on hiatus, but, um, Fingers crossed we got a few more episodes coming for us this this uh, this fall or this winter. Um, now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in reality and genre. Up with the sun, gone with the wind. She always said I was lazy. Leaving my home, leaving my friends. Running when things get too crazy. Out to the road, out neath the stars, feeling the breeze, passing the cars. This week in reality, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Top Chef, the first Thanksgiving, and The Amazing Race, Hot Sexy Nights. And then we're going to talk genre. Simon's going to catch up with Penny Dreadful and Attack on Titan. And then I'll talk Banshee, Supernatural, Ask Jeeves, Constantine, Dan's Vaudoo. I've probably pronounced that incorrectly, and Legend of Korra Remembrances of Legend of Korra. But first, uh, Reality Top Chef, the first Thanksgiving. I really like this this episode. I wanted to specifically mention it. It's been a while since I checked in on these reality shows, and I really like this challenge, forcing the, the chefs to work with the cooking implements of the, the settlers um, was entertaining. Uh, the main thing I took away from this episode, though, is don't tell the judges anything because if Stacy hadn't said I was actually over there plating in the dirt I don't think they make that connection to dirt and then I don't think they send her home I think they send Gregory home for his undercooked duck or goose I'm sorry goose um or or um the the vegetables Melissa for her vegetables so um you know and then the pie filling statements you know if, if they didn't know that it was originally the blueberry compote was originally going to be a pie filling do they make those comments because i don't I, I don't think they do um so i just i was a little disappointed to see some of those judges comments really feel like they were just regurgitating what had been said to them as a potential flaw by the chefs themselves um but otherwise it just was a really fun challenge so i hope to get more like that in the future it was it was a yeah, it was nice to see them having to cook over an open flame and deal with not having forks and everything has to be, you have to be able to eat it with a spoon. You know, I thought that was, was interesting. Um, the Amazing Race is continuing to have an excellent season this week. So Simon, this week they had to carry a, with one arm, with one hand, a platter that has a bottle of the the cure and two stemmed glasses on it up like 500 steps. And if they, if they dropped uh, one of their, you know, something on their tray, one of their very tall glasses, for example, 
and it yeah, and it broke, they would have to then go back to down the steps, get a broom from the the place, sweep up the glass, and then do it again. And both teammates had to do it. That's a bitch of a challenge. It's one that looks so easy on paper, but when when the first contestant gets up there and drops, and the glass falls off at the table, like right when she's about to put it on the table and be done, the challenge. I was just like, oh, oh, damn. Do you think you could do that? I don't know. That sounds almost Sisyphean. Yeah, it's a bit. Yeah. Um, the, the, the challenges this year have been a lot better. I like the repelling that we got. It looked like the, they actually had to do something rather than just being lowered down like, you know, has happened in the past on the show. Um, and, the, you know, I'm, I'm just liking, again, I'm liking the teams. I guess I'm, I'm rooting for the, the bike messengers. I like their, you know, they're sitting off by themselves, uh, Simon, and everybody's like, why are they so antisocial? And they're like, it's not that we're antisocial. We're just New Yorkers and we don't want to talk to you. So... You know, we're tired. You know, it's been a long day. So why would we make buddies with the people that we're competing against? You know, like, I like the way that they found some, some tension, but they don't seem to be overplaying it too much. It's it's a it's a strong field of contenders. And so, uh, you know, I look forward to, to finishing out the season here. It's been it's been a good it's been a good season. I'm calling it right now, by the way. I think at the end they're going to have to say which birds were at which place because now we got a Maltese Falcon in Malta. We got a chicken a couple episodes ago. The person at the mat had a chicken. We've had a couple different, you know, or the, the, the doves that they did, you know, so I'm guessing at the end of the season, there's going to be a bird thing. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, uh, any chance you'll watch like the, the finale of amazing race this year? Or are you completely checked out? No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, let's move on to genre, because uh, while you haven't been um, catching up with Amazing Race, you have been catching up with Penny Dreadful. So how is that going for you? How far are you into the season? Uh, I believe I've watched the first four episodes now. The last episode I watched was the Eva Green flashback episode. So I think that was four. Okay. Uh, I could be wrong. Uh, Closer Than Sisters or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really enjoying Penny Dreadful so far. I don't have that many... That many qualms, and I was. It was. It's been interesting to go back and read recaps from that period when it was airing, and finding people being really sort of blasé about stuff that I've been really enjoying. Like in, I believe, the third episode, the whole sort of mega montage or sequence at the Grand Guignol uh, with them, with many of the characters watching the action on stage and Caliban orchestrating the action. I thought that was a fantastic sequence and a, just a, and a great way to draw everyone together. Uh, and everyone just seemed to think, ah, so, all right. Uh, I guess I'm just more easily impressed by uh, by certain things. Uh, I really liked the, the, the flashback episode. I think anytime you get Eva Green and Strutter stuff for a whole episode, uh, you're going to get good stuff. wasn't quite as, as uh, like, world-consumingly ri- ridiculous and awesome as the never-ending possession sequence in the second episode uh but still pretty great uh i'm just i'm not finding a lot to uh to complain about i even think i really didn't care about dorian gray when he was first introduced like at all and i just thought he was going to be like a almost a show spoiler maybe just because he was so um i don't know just I, I, some combination of the character attributes and the hair was just too much it's just like okay there this is the one character that's not going to work for me but I really liked uh, what they did with him and Josh Hartnett. Uh, not not even necessarily the final beat of that, which was great, uh, but um, 
you, you know, like pairing and, up those two characters. That they, yeah, they just pairing pairing them up in general. Yeah. having them just be interested in each other's lives and actually talk about what's going on and you know look at some art and just do st- and just hang out it was like oh that's that's actually a smart unexpected decision in general i'm enjoying the way that based on john logan's screenwriting credits he's done a lot of you know fairly milk toast projects that are clearly uh, the pro- the the you know the the product of a lot of research and clear thinking it seems like in this show he sort of gathered all his all the weird appendices of his research and just like strange interests and sort of kinkier ideas that never got to fit into any of his nice film projects and he stuffed them all into this series and actually made them work which kind of makes it sort of like the curated version of american horror story that actually functions if that makes any sense yeah i think it does um it sounds like you're enjoying it more than than i did um, though I was, I was more positive on the start of the season than the end of the season. I look forward to, to seeing your, or to hearing your thoughts once you're all caught up. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, you know, I, I, I was a big fan of, of that, uh, Josh Hartnett, um, I forget the character's name, um, and Dorian Gray beat the, the, their scenes in that episode I thought really worked. Um, I am not interested in Caliban even a little bit that, didn't like the, that sequence of the theater. I agree that really worked, but outside of that, I just really don't care about that character. Um, sorry, Rory Kinnear. Kinnear. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The writing for that just didn't didn't work for me at all. Uh, I do think there's a lot more great stuff coming for you with uh, Josh Hartnett's character. I was really impressed with him by the end of the season. I'm sure you will be as well. Uh, how's Timothy Dalton working for you? Oh, Timothy Dalton is the fucking man. I love him. <laughs> and the way they used him in uh, in Eva Green's sort of like possession fever dreams was super creepy. Uh, that was that was really nice to see. Uh, they've just made great use of his th- having him be a good guy uh, while having that just supremely malevolent perma face. Uh, is just a, a really compelling combo that they've done a lot of good stuff with. So I'm I'm hoping that my enjoyment of it holds up in that second half of the season, uh, which you think apparently might it might not. Uh, I've also been watching a series that fewer people will have seen uh, called Attack on Titan. It's an anime series. So this airs on Adult Swim's uh, Toonimation lineup, uh, and this is a uh, it's based on an, on a wildly popular manga series. Uh, it's set in uh, not s- some other world, not Earth, uh, and it, essentially it's the story of a world in which giant humanoid man-eating creatures, uh, which who are very creepy looking, who range anywhere from about 15 meters to apparently something like 200 meters, uh, are roaming, the, are, have basically taken over the world, causing humanity to wall up in this uh, series of towns in concentric behind sort of concentric giant walls behind which they've been safe for a century, but you always know how these things uh, turn out. So I've watched the first 11. Uh, there are 26 in uh, in the first, actually 25, one of them is a clip show, um, and uh, sort of so evenly divided into two halves. I've seen the first, uh, most of the first half. This is a really interesting show um, in the sense that the pacing is absolutely bizarre. Uh, like in the first three or four episodes, you span maybe five or six years. It, there's an episode around seven or eight that takes place over this, mostly over the span of about 15 seconds. 
um, and everything in between is possible. Uh, it has some really novel plot beats, uh, seemingly, and then end up seeming less novel when you find out things later. It has some very shocking moments, which it overplays, uh, and ha and some shocking moments that really work. Uh, it has some like little tonal um, pivots here and there that are fascinating and strange. Uh, it's I think the the reason it's not quite working for me right now is because of the character design. Uh, I need a little bit more time spent developing those characters, uh, especially when they start dropping like flies. Um, but they're, it's it, they're just they're spread a little bit too thin, and a little bit too much time is spent on the admittedly awesome action sequences the sense of motion in those scenes uh is amazing except for when you get a long still shot of so, sort of a tableau of a particular scene seemingly seemingly to save on the budget although i could be wrong uh anyway there's a lot there's a lot going on uh but i i i, I mean i've watched 11 episodes it's been entertaining um and i'm i'd be curious to know if people are watching it and what they have to say about it uh it has a lot to recommend it and it has some fairly obvious flaws as well um so and I'm also I'm also a relatively inexperienced anime watcher, so I don't know how much sort of conventional aspects I'm mistaking for individual flaws. So I'm going to keep watching and keep you posted. Interesting. Well, I know it's gotten a lot of praise over at Thundon Sight. Uh, Ricky is definitely a fan, and some of the other uh, writers over there have been championing uh, the the series. So let me know how it finishes out. I I don't know that I'll make time for it, but um, but if you tell me it's great, I might. This week I did just catch up with uh, Banshee, the first two seasons, and uh, I enjoyed them. I still sorry. Could you say that again? <laughs> This week, you cut up on both seasons of Banshee? Yeah, yeah, I did. There was a lot of housework that needed to get done that I was able to do while watching Banshee, um, so, which was an interesting. Let's do the dishes with headphones in with my watching Banshee on my on my uh, tablet. Yeah, <laughs> so that kind of thing. Um, so maybe I wasn't watching under the you know, giving it my 100% attention, but it's still, uh, there's a lot of stuff. I, I basically agree with what everybody's been saying, where there's the cinematography can be really great. There's fun action. Um, the, so the characters are very much tropes, but there, you know, there's, there's certainly things to make them, uh, entertaining and, and engaging. I still am not interested in, I, I'm, I'm disappointed in the show's treatment of gender, to some extent, however, I will say that the female lead, that that character, um, Anna or uh, Carrie, is badass and awesome, and I really like the nuance that they give her. I like as the over the course of the second season, when you get further away from this notion of of Anna and um, now we call him Sheriff Hood, but I forget what his actual name is, uh, as like this forever couple. When they get started getting away from that, I thought that was more interesting. Um, I like some of the the, the way that, that the, the two of them come together for the final action climax uh, that we get. I really like that she's the one who's on uh, covering the door and taking out all the baddies while he goes to to rescue the the damsel who is Job. You know, I really like that that reversal. I you know, there's a lot of stuff there that I like, but um, I. I'd, I guess I while it's fun, I just don't like it anywhere near as much as I like Strike Back. That that's a show that feels um more much more organic to me. The the sequences they I think I feel like that's a show that gets a lot of the same beats, but better. Um, they, they I feel like they execute the action better. I feel like they get the comedy better. 
beats. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, I see what people like about it. Just for me, it's nowhere near the conversation of best of the year. But um, but I am not sorry that I watched it, certainly. And I, the stuff that they do with the Amish is really interesting. I thought they have done okay with the stuff on the res for this season. You know, we'll see what happens next season. Um, and I, I can't promise I'm going to keep up with it in season three with January being so insane. But um, but I have given it a shot. I've enjoyed my, my time with it. The next show I'm going to catch up with is My Mad Fat Diary, which I've heard nothing but fabulous praise for. So hopefully um, I'll be talking about that a little bit next week. But for now, let me move on to Supernatural Ask Jeeves. I love that they did a Clue episode basically. Um, but they, they kind of just underplay. It's a clue episode because they keep finding like, here's a candlestick. And in a different scene, they walk, Dean walks into an attic and there's a rope and a wrench sitting there. You know, the, the way that they handled that was, was really fun. I like that Bobby is still impacting their lives, even, you know, though he's been gone for quite a while. I like that there are still secrets about him that they just don't know. Um, the, you know, I was surprised to have another comedic episode right after fan fiction, you know, which was obviously Obviously, a very comedic episode. Uh, I have a feeling it's going to get a bit more serious moving forward, but I wanted to mention it because I had a lot of fun with, with Supernatural Ask Jeeves this week. I did not have fun with Constantine, Dan's photo. <laughs> uh, yeah, that. Why did you watch Constantine? Because I heard good things about this episode, and I was like, well, I haven't checked in since episode two. Maybe it got better. They could have figured out, like, found their footing with Zed. Who knows? Basically, the second episode was, was another pilot, so maybe they're more established now. And I know this is a show just is not good. I don't think it's good. I know some a lot of people really have been enjoying it, but even Matt Ryan's performance is not enough to make me like this show. It's just not well written as far as I'm concerned. It's really obvious um, dialogue. The the I have no idea what was going on with that um, New Orleans cop that did not... Like the performance and the um, the accent work didn't work for me. Like anybody from New Orleans who watched this episode, let me know. Maybe I'm off base. Maybe that was an excellent New Orleans accent, but it didn't seem like it to me. <laughs> Chances are it wasn't. Like, can we officially ban the usage of when the Saints go marching in as establishing shot music to be like, we're in New Orleans? I mean, come on, guys. That's, that's, that's terrible. All we learn every year is that no one watched Tremay. Yeah, basically, basically. You know, Treme used when the Saints go marching in, but they're like, oh, are we, are we doing Saints? Okay, we're doing Saints. And then they would be doing a parade and playing when the Saints go marching in, because that's when you play when the Saints go marching in, when there's a bunch of tourists that you're trying to appease or you're in a parade. Um, yeah, anyways, sorry. Uh, that's a diff- whole other thing. But the, just the show, they've stopped production. They're only going to do 13 episodes a season. They NBC has not said whether they're going to pick it up for another season. They haven't outright canceled it. But it's just not good, I don't think. It's not well written. It's not well performed. Um, by by episode, what is this, five or something? Um, the Constantine's constant sweetieing like love and all that stuff has gotten really condescending towards towards Zed already. I every time he says that that should be charming. And in the pilot and in the second episode, at least that element of the character was. But here it's no, it's not. It's I'm over it. This this is the show is not working. I don't think I will watch any more of it. Um wanted to mention it because I did put myself through watching it. I figured I would share with y'all. Uh same thing is true for Legend of Korra remembrances here are my notes for this episode simon it's three words all caps um with a, with the period after each word fuck that shit 
<laughs> so are you familiar with what happened with Legend of Korra this week? Uh, they did a clip show, as I understand it. Yeah, they did a clip show. A straight up, here's what happened last year at summer camp kind of clip show. Uh, the reason that they did the clip show was that their budget was slashed basically to the tune of an entire episode. And they still had a, the, a certain episode they had, episode order they had to fill. So either they had to lay off people on their crew, which they didn't want to do. And if they had done, it would have meant they couldn't have finished the, ep the episode order in time because they wouldn't have had enough animators. Um, or they had to do a clip show. So they did a clip show. Um, and one of the portions of the episode actually is very entertaining and works well. And that's the, the last one. So I'll give them credit for that. They have a third of an entertaining episode, despite it being a clip show here. And the other two thirds are just crap. They're not good. This is a waste of all of our time. What the fuck, Nickelodeon? Why are you doing this to the best show that you have? Not the highest rated, certainly, but the best show, the critically acclaimed Legend of Korra. The this show, the series is amazing. Everybody should watch the series Legend of Korra. I think it got them like a Peabody or something, but... This is what they're doing. To, I, ah, it's the bottom line, baby. The, the, if you want to slash their budget, I get it. They're releasing these episodes online. Cut down the episode order. Yeah. No, apparently not an option. Why make them do a clip show that is just a recycling of old things with uh, some new dialogue? Why don't they just cut down the episode order by an episode? It's not like they're worried about the ratings. <laughs> yeah, clearly. I just, it's really, really frustrating. Um, so uh, I just I don't understand Nickelodeon's mistreatment of the Legend of Korra. I mean, I get that no, not enough people are watching it, but this is the balance that, that that you strike if you're a network. You have shows that you you keep on the air because they raise your profile, they get people to watch your network, they give you get you serious critical press, and get allow other people to see like, well, I don't know. Normally, I wouldn't check out the show, but they did make Legend of Korra, so maybe this will be interesting. And then you have your shows that make you a bunch of money. And hopefully your your really great shows also make you a bunch of money. But to in, in its last season, just cancel it. If you're going to cancel it, cancel it. I just, it really, I, I just don't understand how they don't see what potential this, this show has and or had because it's over at the end of the year, but the end of the season. But it, just, it, it boggles, it boggles the fucking mind. Um, so that was, those are my thoughts on Legend of Korra right now. Um, any other thoughts on, on any of this stuff? Are you going to, do you think you'll catch up with Korra? Uh, I have no idea. I, I'm going to have a huge block of time to watch a whole bunch of things from around December 11th to Christmas. Uh, but that's mm -hmm. also going to include a lot of movies. So, uh, I don't know. It's, we'll see, we'll see how much my eyeballs can take. Yeah, fair enough. Well, this week, uh, in, well, what, what wins your week in genre? Penny Dreadful or Attack on Titan? I'll give it to Penny Dreadful. Uh, hopefully, I continue to enjoy it. I'll give reality to The Amazing Race, and I will give genre to Supernatural, I guess, uh, on just compared, comparing Supernatural to Constantine and Korra. Definitely got to give it to Supernatural. Um, so now we'll take a break, and we'll come back with a hopefully much more positive, at least for me, weekend drama. Won't you come on? Suspended in the dead arms of a year that is. 
In drama, I'm going to talk a little bit about elementary, Bella, and then we'll both talk about Kingdom, Animator, Annihilator, Parenthood, Lean In, The Affair, Seven, The Newsroom, Main Justice, and The Good Wife, The Trial. That's a lot of episodes, Simon. Let's dive in. Elementary, I just wanted to mention because they did a fun sort of AI kind of episode. Uh, I liked the the use of the doll. That really worked for me. And um, they, they continue to... You know the the inclusion of Kitty continues to work. I like what they're doing with with um with her and how she's affecting the dynamic with Holmes and Watson. Um, so I just I like the way that uh, I enjoyed the episode and uh, I enjoyed Holmes's um, obsession with beating the AI at the Turing test. Um, so. I had a lot of fun with this episode. I felt like it deserved some praise. Let's move swiftly on to Kingdom, Animator, Annihilator. What did you think? This was a real mixed bag. Uh, first of all, I wanted to praise the fight scene, which I, I didn't know that was where they were going with that. And it's nice to have a fight scene between two characters where you're legitimately unsure how they're, how far they're going to go or what the outcome will be. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's not it's not something you get to see very often. And I just I thought it was well executed in general. I'm not sure I bought that he would uh, destroy so much of that gym and then still be fighting for him at the end of the at the end of the episode that was a bit of a stretch uh, of the sort that we haven't really seen so far but i still appreciated the fight itself uh although frankly my 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 favorite touch of this episode was uh i don't know I'm trying to think of how to it, it's the, it's the same sort of delightful feeling i had when i was watching penny dreadful uh pleasantly ambushed by gainus <laughs> yeah okay do you think? Do you expect that to go somewhere, somewhere else? Do you think Nate's decision to end his treatment is associated with that, or do you think that's separate? I mean, where do you? Oh, I mean, that's it's there. I, I don't think they would have put in that scene unless it was to associate it with what we just seen earlier. Yeah. Um, and I would have to assume that's a deliberate association. I mean, I don't. It's the sort of thing that they could choose to keep submerged for. A few more episodes or a few more seasons if it runs that long. I mean, I know it, it has been renewed. Uh, so they can do whatever they want with that. But it's it's nice for them to broaden the toolkit of an episode uh, of a character who is so uh, who keeps so much to himself and is so withdrawn. I think well, that's a really smart move. Well, and they've made a point of having the characters discuss that so that, you know, Jay and Alvy have talked about how Nate gives them so little. He says nothing. Uh, keeps everything internalized. Um, and Jay says, yeah, but if you, if you're there, if you allow, if you notice these details, you allow him to every now and again, you get a crumb and then you can build a relationship off of that. Um, I like that, that this is not out of nowhere. It's not like there's some duck secret or so, you know, you know, in this case, an ex boyfriend who shows up and it feels like it's a complete twist. It's just, well, I didn't know anything about the character to start with, so this right, is... Yeah, I, I I do think it it feels like a twist in the sense that this has been a, an extremely straight universe. Yes, yes, uh, that's there, true. There has been no trace of anything that is not totally heteronormative. So, in a way, they've been smart in the in the in the in the way that they played that when when they when they reveal that oh yeah we can do this too it's like oh cool yeah that's nice to see. Yeah. The other part of this episode that I particularly enjoyed uh, is, well, enjoyed might be the wrong word. I like the shopping spree. That was nice. Um, but uh, Christina c- 
kind of being the worst, you know, with with Jay, where she, we start to see her as um, a needy manipulator, and it's not it's not outright. It's not like she's suddenly a villain or anything, but I like that they don't completely keep her rose colored in this episode. I like that there's more, you know, potential controlling elements to her nature. You can see, you're starting to see uh, how she and Alvi uh, had problems maybe even aside from the drugs. So uh, I, I'm hoping that they'll continue to develop Christina and, and the different relationships. We were saying last week that we needed to get more information about how Al- where Alvi was at with all of this. Uh, do you feel like we got that here? Uh, not really, but again, like we're dealing with these very withdrawn uh, manly men who don't talk about their feelings, which is a show that, which is to the show's credit. That's something that it's earnestly interested in exploring and not just showing us, uh, which is the difference between like this and a Ray Donovan or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember, that's a show that exists and people watch. Uh... Um, and I think that's been the show's strength is it's it's been its willingness to take another step in examining these characters. Uh the, I think the the weakness of the show is that it does is that it does that very slowly, <laughs> so that can be frustrating. Uh, I I will say points to Matt Loria for really digging his heels in and just getting the rage out, which is just a side of him we've never really gotten. He always plays such nice boys, and so for him to just totally cut loose and just that whole drug workout sequence was was just awesome yeah i like that they also ha- confirmed this week that he is he's supposed to work at the rat place guys that's gonna be a problem because someone's gonna find out and you know they i don't think they bring it up again if uh in his his scene the scene that uh, ends up with him living at the gym or living with alvy and actually living at the gym i don't think they bring up the that rat job rat catcher job if if it doesn't come back at the end of the season or even earlier. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with that, but I'm, I just kind of keep waiting for that to explode. Mm-hmm. Uh, last thing I wanted to mention is I, I really like the opening montage with everyone's morning routine. Mm-hmm. Um, that the notion of Christine doing yoga was perfect. Uh, I would like a little bit more forward momentum still on figuring stuff out and, uh, and I would, and I'm going to need them to really justify hard keeping uh, Matt Laurie's character fighting when he's been such a douche. Yeah, yeah, it would be good to get more. I, li- I like that they're not just making him likable Matt Laurie, but uh, yeah, I'm going to need a little bit more there. I agree. And certainly, there's only three episodes left, so they're going to need to start moving things forward. Um, let's move on though to Parenthood. Lean in. I really like this episode. It was probably my favorite of the season. How did it work for you? At this point, I'm really only watching Parenthood to see how it ends, so I can mercy kill it. Um, I, I, in in retrospect, everything about Joel and Julia has been insulting. <laughs> Just the way that they've designed, like I don't know if I don't know what the original plan was for them two or three seasons ago, but it couldn't have been this. You know, see, but I liked them in this episode because they're actually taught, like, we, Julia, like, her scene she has with Camille, I loved that. I was like, this is what we needed last year. Somebody yeah, but, to be talking to somebody about what's going on. Yeah, but because we, we're getting it now, it's just a slap in the face to me. Okay, I guess. I mean, it, it works for me, certainly. And I, I, I needed that scene, but with Joel last year, um, we still haven't gotten the Joel scene like that, but I like you know, I, and the the show's um, mature 
discussion of this in this episode is what made me such a fan of the episode. When we have Julia saying, and obviously I screwed up too. I know that I let things get out of hand with Ed. I know that I screwed up. Um, but he just left. And I'm like, yeah, that's how we all felt this last year. Cause it didn't make any sense. And it was poorly plotted and written. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so that stuff for me really worked in this episode. I also really liked the stuff with Max. How did that work for you? Uh, the Max stuff was strong. Um, I think that the, the way that they just very methodically dealt with the Dylan situation made sense. That was fine. Um, I don't know. I just I couldn't really glom onto anything to particularly care about this week. Even the stuff with Zeke, like, yes, we're supposed to care very much that he is having some sort of heart attack or something at the end of the episode, but it was just so schematic. Just like, oh, he's planning a trip. He, trip's not going to happen. There's no way that trip happens. Yeah, but I did really love the scene we get with Camille and Zeke when he tells her about the trip. I thought that was beautiful in her reaction. It's like, yeah, give Bunny Bedelia something to do and she'll be good. Guys, she's, she's in your cast. Maybe use her. She's in your cast and she can do more than stand on stairwells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, I mean, that, that really did work for me very well. Um, I, and also, you know, they had, they, they brought back um, you know, love triangle boy, uh, the English teacher. And that, that worked for me as well. I liked the, the exchange we got with Lauren Graham and Jason Ritter too. So everything in this episode, I ended up liking. Yeah. I mean, there's, there was nothing offensive really, except for the Jewel and Julia thing, because they're just always going to be offensive to me, but everything just reeks of let's have one last beat because we're wrapping things up. Like let's bring back Jason Ritter so he can show up one more time so we can reconfirm that that's not going to happen. And we're committing to rear my, like, okay, I get it. I get it. <laughs> well, uh, let's move on to the affair because I'm curious, I'm curious if you appreciated uh, the sequences we got there a little better than what we got with Joel and Julia here. Uh, this is seven is the episode and uh, man, Maura Tierney and Joshua Jackson, I mean, the whole, all four of them, but having both pairs come clean or be found out by, by their spouse, um, and and the beautifully um, mature and thoughtful scenes we get from that, I thought was absolutely lovely. I did not expect that from the show. And it, it went up in my estimation because of it. Yeah, it was interesting to see people be kind of lukewarm on this, uh, as, I, as I, far as I read anyway, because I, I thought it was uh, mostly very good. I did, did we really need... Um, you know, uh, Ruth Wilson getting stoned and then going to Maura Tierney's shop? Probably not. I think that was maybe one step that I didn't need. Having th having that turn out to be before the breakup was smart. Uh, sorry, before the revelation was smart uh, and unexpected. But still, it, it almost it was almost like the show saying, hey, we could have done this really cheap thing. Instead, we're, we just did this slightly cheap thing. <laughs> I agree with you about uh, Maura Tierney and Joshua Jackson. They do... Fantastic work that it's it's strange because they they they've been they haven't been getting a lot to do in those first six episodes for the most part, and having them be such a big part of this episode works a little bit better because of that. Does it does it does it mean we had to have six episodes of them getting not a lot to do? I don't know, uh, but you're shaking your head. It has a certain cumulative effect. They could have accomplished that other ways, but I still think it works. The, uh, I mean, I feel as though now we're finally getting into the stuff that interests me because it, 
usually when you deal with infidelity on on dramas, it's like either it's something that happened in the distant past and we got over it and it's not going to happen again, or you see it happen and there's a big blowout and someone walks out and there's divorce papers on the table. Uh, and so there's, which is just, as I understand it, is generally not what happens. So uh, to, to see a show that's willing to actually examine uh, what happens when, when committed people uh, face infidelity is way more interesting. Well, and the, the, I like that the both Moratini's character and Joshua Jackson's character don't make the 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 leap that characters on TV always seem to make that it's because of them somehow. They both seem to understand there's a lot going on. And so the the conversation we get with Noah and his wife is the most honest exchange the two of them have had throughout the series. And so, you know, like that you know, he's talking about how he you know, feel uh, how he feels and what headspace he was in that led him to make this choice and he never blames her and she seems to understand that it's not about her it's about him and 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 that that you know when she says like that's because you are like he's like you feel, i feel like you're waiting for me to succeed and and she says that's because you're waiting for you to succeed or, you know something like that like it was just such a wonderful moment of of clarity and awareness of that couple and same thing we get with joshua jackson's character where it's just he's like this is obviously because our kid died and we're both still fucked up uh, yeah. about it you know I, I really like that they we don't get lash outs lashing out of anger but they both seem you know, like understand that there's been a lot going on in their lives yeah well i i like his initial pure spite reaction of well this is your problem yeah <laughs> yeah and, like i'm not even gonna deal with it and maybe you should go for a while uh, and then having a couple of days to cool off and then, you know, reconsider or, you know, whatever it is specifically that happens. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, these are not rea- these are not scenes we typically get to have. So, yes, this is the stuff that I was always sort of hoping for from the affair. How much do I care about the murder mystery? I'm not sure yet. I don't care about the murder mystery at all. I, I-, I would need to care about the brother a little bit to care that he's dead. And I don't even even a little bit. I don't care. Um, the only thing that could make me care about that is if it turns out that Sasha did it. Um, or sorry, Whitney, like, because we do get that one brief moment where the two of them are, are going to go hook up. So maybe there's like this whole storyline going on that we don't know about this whole time. And she's going to be all, you know, femme fatale at the end of the season. Episode 10, part one, Whitney. No, <laughs> But um, but no, I agree. This is the show that I I care way more about the second half of the season, starting last week and then this week, than I do about the first half of the season. So I hope that they can maintain that in the last three episodes. And um, it only sh- took five weeks of homework to get to. Oh God. Okay, let's move on to the newsroom m- main justice. And uh, we were warned a little bit by the internet that this one might not be as good as last week, and we certainly got some mansplaining. We're gonna fucking talk about Jim. Yeah. But before we do, let's talk about the things that worked in this episode. Uh, can we get some love for Toby? Because, damn. Paul Lieberstein killed it this episode. That that interview sequence was maybe my favorite thing the show's ever done. It's pretty amazing, yeah. Uh, that was... Because it, it was nice that to, to, for them to have a comic sequence that worked and didn't wasn't tied to a whole bunch of other things. It was just allowed to live on its own. And then when it's over, it's like, yep, that was a thing that happened. And everyone just keeps doing their jobs. It doesn't have to be this huge repercussive moment. Uh, but actually, I would like to talk about Jim. 
because I feel like people aren't drawing a distinction or maybe, <laughs> oh God, I just about to mansplain things. Um, <laughs> it's so, it's so tempting. Um, I, I'm not seeing people draw a distinction between Jim, the character and um, like, like, I feel like people are taking depiction as endorsement or something because mm -hmm. like I I don't have a problem with Jim being a dick. Like I'm I'm okay with Jim being a dick if I believe it from the character and it makes sense for something for the characters to to interact with. Uh and the scenes of Jim being a horrible dick just felt like Jim to me. That is true. And that's part of the problem for me because this show has consistently over its run had Jim as one of the Sorkin surrogates and one of the guys you're supposed to be rooting for and who's supposed to be right. So maybe the show has changed and he's not supposed to be right. But um, the, the, the issue I have here with, with Jim is not that I don't believe him that he would do, but he, he calls his girlfriend a whore and then doesn't understand that he's called her a whore. And, that she should be upset about that and needs to have explained to him by Maggie that, Hey, your girlfriend didn't like it when you called her a whore. Like, it's not like, it's not like he, he and the way the scene is played also helps with that makes it more, um, uh, problematic for me because the delivery in that sequence is first of all, because, uh, Grace Gummer, we like Grace Gummer. It's like, what the fuck did you just say to Grace Gummer? You better take it back, sir. Um, but the performance that we get from the the actor playing Jim, whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, John Gallagher Jr. John Gallagher Jr. is very, it's not like he's talking fast and like these words get out ahead of him and he doesn't realize or and he says it and then he goes, oh, shit. There's no self-awareness at all. He doesn't think there's anything wrong with what he said. And when he's talking to Maggie later, he's he basically like, well, I mean, I called her a whore. No, no, I shouldn't have done that. But I mean, she kind of is, right? Are you, this is the, and it doesn't help that there also looks like they're starting to tease maybe a, a, a Jim and Maggie getting back together thing. Oh God, um, I hope that's not happening. Oh Jesus, no. Oh Jesus, please God, no. Yeah. Um, so, so like all that comes together for me in a way that is just like, I, the show can't expect me to care about Jim anymore. That's the thing. And I feel like the show expects me to care about Jim. Uh, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to plead the fifth for, for now, uh, because I don't know where they're going with it. In the context of this episode, I thought there was sufficient, uh, especially Grace Gummer's reaction of being like, you motherfucker, <laughs> like, we're, like, we're, like, like, I'm not even, like, I can't even see angry from here. Uh, yeah. We're not talking about this. Go to bed now. But then to have her go, we're talking about this after, it's like, you're playing this beat for comedy? You had, you gave her such this, this strong, completely justified reaction, and then you undercut it by having it be like, girls are crazy. Uh, I can I can see that angle. Oh my god, am I about to give Sorkin the benefit of the doubt? Yeah, I think you are. Oh my god, what's become of me? Oh <laughs> Jesus! Ah, uh, I gotta stop talking about this. Um, let's talk about anything else. The I don't believe the show when it gets serious about uh whistleblowing and state secrets and threatening Neil or threatening anyone really. I just don't buy it. Okay. Is that just me? Like. Some of the dialogue is fun, but uh, maybe it's because I watched Citizen Four this weekend. But like, I I just don't like I don't believe 
like the, the arc of this like I, I I I don't believe that anything will come of any of this because I don't buy Sorkin creating this alternate universe and then having seismic things that have never happened in the real world happen in the co- in the in the context of his show. It's not how he works, uh, to my knowledge. So yeah, I don't know. I just I'm I'm bored by that storyline. It's working. Um, it's working on the whole for me, and it sounds like it's certainly working a lot more for me than it is for you. Uh, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and especially, like, the episode, like, the, the finale is called What Kind of Day Has It Been? Something like that, which is the title Sorkin Loves to Use, um, which, in, as soon as I read that, tells me, well, Will's going to be in the newsroom, and they're, it's going to be, like, the end of, maybe the, the the show gets canceled, and they all have their boxes, and it's the end of an era, and they're going on to new things, but it certainly is not, that's not the title of a, sh- of a show that's going to end with Will in jail. Uh, no, just <laughs> that not would be happen. great though. Him sitting in Guantanamo Bay. Well, what kind of day has it been? <laughs> uh, that would be an ending I could get behind. This really feels like it's headed for the um, sports sports night ending. Uh, I mean, I liked BJ uh, Novak uh, here. That is some excellent casting. He's very believable as that dude. He is the the uh, his. His actual dialogue was overcooked for me, but his performance was great. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on this? Ep- how, how did this compare to previous episodes? I think you? last week was probably going to end up being their high watermark, even though the the Paul Lieber scene stuff was amazing. Yeah, it was <laughs> that too- that scene will be the show's legacy as far as it's the show's positive legacy as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the show obviously already has many negative legacies. Mm-hmm. More fun Don and Sloan stuff this week as well. That was nice. But um, yeah, uh, I, I agree. The takeaway is certainly the Paul Everstein scene. Let's move on to our last show of the week, and that's The Good Wife, The Trial. We we co-reviewed the the mid-season finale over at Sound on Sites. So people can go find our review there. So I already know what you think about the, the, the mid-season finale here. But uh, for our listeners' sake, what did you think about the mid-season finale? I was good. Uh, it wasn't mind blowing, and I think that's sort of a good summary summary of the season so far. Uh, there's been a lot to like, uh, only a few things to dislike. Some weird nagging flaws that have been pretty much the same over the course of these ten episodes, uh, and reason to be optimistic for the future. The they have not handled uh, Archie Punjabi's departure as well as they handled. Uh, Josh Charles's departure, and not only because they kept one of those things a secret. The uh, if anything, I feel like if they hadn't announced Archie Punjabi's departure, we would be more annoyed. Mm. Because we'd be like, "Oh my god, she's going to be here for the entire run of the show, and we'll never get anything interesting to do, and we'll never get a scene with Alicia," which was especially glaring this week when they had they both had the same item in their hand, and one got it to the other. And see, but I just I was fine with that. I didn't need to see that. That I was glad that they like the through line is the envelope. I don't need to see her hand it to her and then be like, okay, I got this. I mean, I think there are other scenes where it's more glaring personally. But fair um, enough. But it continues to be a frustration of the, well, because they Josh Charles was leaving, and so they're like, okay, what's the best story we can do? Let's tie him in hardcore with Alicia and give them plenty of stuff to play. And they're like, okay, Archie Punjabi is leaving. What can we do? Uh, let's have her continue. Let's bring back one of her ex-girlfriends. Can we, can we tie her in with Alicia? Uh, apparently we're told we cannot do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lamont Bishop. We like Lamont Bishop, right? We like uh, Lamont Bishop. Sure. Mike Colton's great. Uh, there's, yeah. He's rumored to be playing uh, Luke Cage. He's like one of the people up for that. That would be great. 
for him in terms of getting a job. I don't, I don't actually care about it. But him being a lead on something, that's great. And he's obviously big enough to do it. <laughs> uh, just physically big enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the scenes with him and Punjabi in the kitchen were great. He's literally like two and a half times her size. Um, but... And then the way she brings him down with, I can threaten your kid, motherfucker. Just like, oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, I, I love when he comes back, he comes in to the, the trial and, and she's like, what the fuck do you think was going to happen? I don't know. It's a very sweary podcast for me this week. But w- yes, what I did noticed. you think was going to happen? You threatened my kid. Never. You're lucky I didn't kill you. <laughs> yeah. When, when, her response to, does anyone know you're here? Yes. <laughs> it's like her least convincing lie ever. Uh, that was great. But, uh, you know, like her individual scenes work, but the way that she's woven into the fabric of the show uh, is not working and hasn't worked all season. And it's been especially glaring coming off a season where they handled another departure really spectacularly well. Um, the stuff with Carrie, I thought, worked. Uh, the the varying perspectives of the courtroom was great. Uh, it was fun to uh, sort of live chat this with you while watching it, and, and you'd be like, oh, we've got Zach Orth here, recognizable star in the voting room, in, in, uh, on the jury. That's going to be something. I smell a mistrial, and I was like, tee, because I was like 40 minutes ahead of you, because I'm in Canada, where like civilized people, we watch The Good Wife on time. <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. Or not. Nope. Good wife. Don't roll that way. Yep. Yeah. That so. that, that was a nice surprise. Uh, I like that we had David Pamer back um, and he because he was the first judge in the pilot. Uh, so that, you know, the first judge we got was on the he? series. He was, apparently he's the first judge we had in the series. And I, as soon as I read that in one of the reviews, I was like, you know what? I remember something about a muffin in that first episode that we had him with as well. So either I'm making that up. Uh, or that is the case. Uh, I like to think it's the, sec- the latter of those two. Uh, but I liked all the, the behind the scenes stuff we got. I like that it kept teasing these ways in which we're going to get a mistrial or the prosecution is going to screw something up or, you know, like the stuff with Zach Gorth, like you said. Um, and then, nope, we end the episode with Carrie con- uh, taking a guilty, pleading guilty to something he did not do. Or we assume he didn't do. Yeah, did we, did I believe him. Do we believe him? I believe him <laughs> way more than I believe Josh didn't do anything. That's true. Um, the Josh, uh, Josh Charles, Josh will. Um, <laughs> my favorite bit of like shifting perspective stuff was the way we got Geneva Pines whole like drama happening that we knew nothing about, mm-hmm. uh, featuring uh, Artie from The Sopranos. Um, just like the way that they that they played that was just so great. Mm-hmm. Just like showing us tropes we've seen before, but but they're not actually important. That was a great way to handle that. What What did you think about Darkness at Noon? Um, you mean the note? Um, yeah, I was fine with it. I know that other people who aren't me uh, had an issue with her actually physically writing that. I, I I like the idea of her in her downtime telling dark jokes to her children. Um, whether writing them down makes a lot of sense, I don't know, but there were enough lols to be had from that plot line that I was able to let it go. Yeah, I was, you know, if, if they had, if the fact that it was a quote from Darkness at Noon had come back in some way, that I, th- I feel like I would have bought it more. So, like, if, if the... It getting, if we'd heard it before? No, well, there's that. Or if, um, more specifically, if, if like, the way that it became nothing got like laughed off or whatever was somebody on youtube put together like a supercut of the letter and the scene from darkness at noon or like 
like she ended up getting a positive boost because she was relatable because she watched the, one of the most popular shows on TV, Darkness at Noon, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then, like, then I would have had less of an issue with it. Well, they kind of did that with her being a grizzly mom. A little bit, but but they don't. But again, it's like this notion that she's quoting the show Darkness at Noon, but then I don't. It felt like it was trying way too hard. I, there was definitely a try hard aspect, and there was definitely an aspect of we need to go hard on the funny to to sort of disorient people on the way to the verdict. And I guess that was kind of pre- that was predictable in a good wifey kind of way. Like that wouldn't have been predictable for anyone else, but it's sort of a movie you could see them do. But I don't know. I I got enough fun beats out of it that I didn't really care. I, my favorite of which was uh, actually St- Stephen Pasquale's. The, but this is what she's doing is. Uh, she's showing us what not uh, just mm-hmm. his his totally flummoxed reaction was perfect and by far by far his character's best moment so far. <laughs> yeah, the 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 main thing I'm curious about with that is I want to see how long it's going to take for Alicia to not to to rebel against being managed so carefully. She's being so very handled. They keep ignoring her wishes, and thus far she if she's if she's telling herself that her that that they are listening to her and respecting what she tells them she wants, then she's an idiot, um, and she's not an idiot. So I'm choosing to believe that she knows that they leaked the dino, caused the dino video to get leaked, and that they leaked this as well, even though she expressly told them not to. Um, I would think Alicia would have a problem with that. So. I don't know if that's I my read of the character is incorrect or the show hasn't done a good enough job. Well, there's there's a lot of things that Alicia could be phoenixing from and isn't at the moment. So I'll, I I agree. I think the character has various breaking points that we should be seeing her reach. basically reach. Uh, and uh, we'll see if they I mean, this is our last episode of the year. This is the last Good Wife of 2014. Take, go go on Wikipedia and look at the stuff they've aired this year. Uh, they had it's a big ridiculous. year. Yeah. Ridiculous here. Um, so, you know, hats off to the Kings, etc. for having a great year. Uh, next, I would really like the second half of the season to kick it up a notch. Uh, I guess we haven't even mentioned Alicia and Finn. That diner? Oh my god, that was awesome. <laughs> more pancakes. So you get, 2014, the year of pancakes. I th- If we can get one more in there after this in review, we can make it the year of pancakes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, nothing is occurring to me. But yeah, th- th- that's just like this side of too much with them. Like like they know, and they know that we know that they know. Uh, <laughs> but it's as long as those two actors are that good, uh, I think they can get away with it. They need. I feel like they need some kind of friction soon, though, and not just you know the kind they're currently having. Yeah, we'll see where this goes next. I liked that Finn already had the the photos ready for her, so that it wasn't like him being pushed out of his comfort zone. But he was pissed off about it too, um, about what was happening with Carrie, uh, especially because you know, you'd think he would have a connection there just because Carrie used to work in the same office as him. It's like he he was in this job. You'd think that should, you know, prevent some of this clearly political. Um, uh, railroading you'd think you mm-hmm. so like i like this notion that it's not like he's only doing it for alicia it's that he also has a sense of of there's an injustice being done uh, so so that that really did work for me and i've just been enjoying like that's one of the finn polmar's got to be one of the characters of the year uh he's I mean, yeah he's it's not often 
even in, I mean in this in the in the world of the Good Wife, doubly so. But in general, we don't get to just have likable characters who get to be who are nice and are good at their jobs and care about doing good things, and are also devilishly handsome. It just doesn't happen that much. <laughs> who who yeah. also have great E. E. Cummings like names. Well, and who enter a show in the middle of its fifth season and immediately feel like they belong. And it's hard to remember. Oh, yeah, he wasn't in the first four and a half seasons of this show. Yeah, no. And and also, like, came in at what should have been a really stupid time. Yeah. She, he, he, should, he should be the Cousin Oliver and the Poochie, and he's not. He should be the Holly. <laughs> he, he really should be the Holly. Oh, God. Freaking Holly. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but th- I think... Uh, that, and the credit goes to, to Matthew Good and the writers and the Kings for, for making that, that transition be as smooth as it has been. Uh, well, what wins your week in drama here? We got some contenders. Uh, we do. Um, I will. You know what? It's the last time I get to do it for like at least a month. I'll give it to The Good Wife. I think I'm going to give it to The Affair. Oh. I know. I'm surprised, too. Uh, but I very much enjoyed The Good Wife. Very dramatic stuff with Carrie. I'm looking forward to what happens next. But... But the affair, you know, they kicked it up a notch and the, they let the rest of their cast do something. And that was very much appreciated. So um, we didn't even mention the 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 profile coming out on Maura Tierney's dad in the affair, which was oh, hilarious. Yes. Dominic West's look of pure joy oh, was, was fantastic. Yeah. So this week, I'm you know, good wife. Always, we always love the good wife here on the Televerse, but I'm going to give it to the affair this week. All right, fair enough. A few show notes. You can find a post up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can let us know what you're watching and what we should be watching. You can email us at televerse at gmail.com. You can find us in iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. You can also uh, find us on Facebook. Like us on Facebook to, to follow the goings on at Soundonsite TV and the Televerse. And we're both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse. And Simon, you are? At Sucker Howl. And what is our question of the week? Uh, is there, uh, on the subject of Holly and Kalinda and characters, uh, like that, and I, that's putting them in the same sentence I didn't mean to do, but I, it's the same question. Uh, are there any characters you would just like to see unceremoniously axed, uh, real life contracts notwithstanding? Ooh, from shows. You can only choose one. I can only choose one from shows that are currently on. Yeah. Laurel on, uh, Arrow. Definitely Laurel on Arrow. I don't care how hard they're trying to make her into Black Canary. They just they should have cut bait with that character a long time ago. Just 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 you know have her get hit with a sonic beam and replaced with a different actress, or just write the character <laughs> off. Just yeah, that's what I'm going with. How about you? Uh, I've watched two episodes of Arrow and I have no idea who Laurel is. Um, <laughs> huh. Um. I'll, you know what, I, I brought it up myself, but I think that I have to think about it. There's too many contenders, and I don't even watch Sleepy Hollow, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I look forward to hearing. I'm sure people will have strong responses. Let me say, listeners, I know that there's more than one of you out there. So that if we can get some responses, because I feel like this one will be entertaining, too. I thought the shipping one would be entertaining, uh, and then you guys kind of let us down a little bit. I thought so, too. I went out on a limb for that, because I find shipping creepy as hell. Yeah, but I, I am sure I'm sure this time we'll get some responses from people. So let us know what uh, what you think is the character who needs to go back to his home planet. Um, but now we'll take a break and come back with Noel Kirkpatrick of TV.com to talk about Over the Garden Wall. So uh, we'll be right back uh, after this. Wait a second. Uh, Craig, 
we? In the woods. I mean, what are we doing out here? We're walking home. Greg, I think we're lost. We should, we should have left a trail or something. I can leave a trail of candy for my pants. <sighs> no. Though I am lost, my wounded heart resides back home in pieces strewn about the graveyard of my lost love. For only... <gasps> Do you hear that? Yeah. Do you think it's some kind of deranged lunatic with an axe waiting out there in the darkness for innocent victims? A is for the apple that he gave to me, but I found a worm inside. B is for the lover that I called to him before he left my side. And C, see what he did, that's D, did it to poor old me. How could I be such an E? gentleman I thought he was when he first said hi H-I J is for the joker that is Jimmy B the man who made me cry that's a C and K well you know it's just not okay to kiss and then run away leaving alone without leaving a letter for we're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, it's you can't actually buy a DVD of this yet, as far as I understand, but you can purchase it and download it. And so I'm saying it counts. Um, and that's Over the Garden Wall, here to help us talk about this this lovely miniseries. A returning guest, uh, Noel Kirkpatrick from TV.com. Noel, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So Over the Garden... So Over the Garden Wall is a 10-part miniseries that aired on Cartoon Network uh, the week of Halloween, two parts per evening just over the course of the week. And uh, we've been sort of raving about it for the last week uh, week or two on the podcast. Noel, wh- what did you think about Over the Garden Wall? And uh, are, are we, have we been overselling, or is it really that great? It's really that great. Um, I didn't I hadn't heard anything about it. I um, until I saw it advertised during Steven Universe. And so when I saw it, I, was, I just got really excited because it looked really different um, just in terms of subject matter and in tone. And I was just really, really excited. And it lived up to those expectations. I ended up watching it all in one sitting the last night that it aired, like watching it off my DVR. And then I watched the last episode. And it's just, it's really, really good. What I think is so great about that sort of viewing experience for it, and I do think it's very much a, it fits the miniseries structure in that it is a series of discrete adventures that these two brothers go on for most of the the, the parts. It does work very much as like a chapter one, chapter two kind of situation. Um, but when you watch it back to back to back to back, as I know Simon did and I was I did as much as I was able when I first watched the the build to this season or this mini series is really remarkable. By the time you get to the end, it's just it's a gut punch. That part nine, part ten, you know, one two is really effective. Yeah, yeah, no, it really is. And I remember when I was sitting down and watching it, I was just like, when episode nine into the unknown starts up, and I'm just like, oh. Oh, I just got really excited. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right for me. Uh, Simon, uh, how, how did that work? Did you have the same moment in episode nine? I don't know if I had the same moment of revelation 
in the way or with the same sounds that Noel did. But uh, I do think that in general, uh, this has just been one of the great, this has been a, a lovely year for surprises that just came out of nowhere. I mean, I think anyone who read the initial synopsis for Jane the Virgin thought this looks dumb. And anyone who saw that the Cartoon Network was doing a miniseries uh, about an adventure probably didn't think anything of it, of it at all. These are things that don't sound that special on paper. But I think uh, what really elevates this is just there's nothing um, there's nothing television-y about its ambitions, if that makes any sense. Like, yes, it is episodic, but it feels more, like you said, Kate, like chapters of a storybook rather than episodes of a TV show. Uh, and I, I think what I like most about it is that it doesn't go too big. It ha it's actually telling a very intimate story, uh, albeit with a you know a bunch of fantastical ca fantastical characters in this very beautifully drawn universe. But if you really break it down, you're really only dealing with you know three or four characters in this ambiguously sized wood area, plus a, a small chunk of the real world eventually, and. It doesn't try to do too much, and arguably it maybe like when when you initially when you figure out that it's really a story about a boy learning to deal with girls, uh, and and you know certain other things are happening in and around there as well. It's it was for me a a little bit of a letdown, but then when I thought about it later, I thought well, actually it dealt with those themes in a in a really refreshing way where it it kept everything in perspective and never got. It, it never lets Wart sort of, it never lets his uh, emotions take over the story, which is a really sort of novel way to handle that. You know, that's really interesting to me because for me, that's not at all what it's about. For me, it's about a, a boy learning to be a brother. And, uh, and and so that theme is absolutely there as well, Simon. But I think I just found that, that a different, uh, you know, what you find and what you see in uh, uh, in a project like this, there's so much there. It's so rich that, you know, for me, this is all about, uh, Wirt, you know, realizing these, these issues he has and learning how to be a, a big brother and a stepbrother. And, but, and for you, you really keyed into that other element of it. Uh, Noel, what, what, what elements stand out to you thematically? Oh, no, I'm with you, Kate, in that I saw it very much as a story about, brothers and coming to grips with being a big brother and seeing past those things that were that he saw in Greg as like distractions or immaturities or just random things that he just didn't want to deal with that got him distracted from courting poor um courting Sarah and so that's what I came away with it was. And I, that's what I saw when saw with this is that this was about war coming to terms with that. And I think that kind of comes through, especially in the end when he when he accuses Greg and Greg's father of ruining his life, basically. And I think that's that's this journey is him coming to grips with the fact that in his brain, he realized that his goofy candy pants stepbrother would be willing to sacrifice himself for him. And I think that was a big realization for him. Well, there's also that thread though. I mean, is I am right there with you, you know, but there, I, I, I think Simon, you're also keying into something because 
of Beatrice. She's such a significant character. I know for many, she's one of the, the kind of breakthrough characters. She's a talking bluebird. Um, but, but that relationship that we get with Wirt and Beatrice as it progresses also is potentially a stand-in for Sarah and some of these other issues as well. Well, and not to mention the one-off with, uh, I want to say the Shannon Sossaman voice yeah, character. Lorna. Lorna. Yes. Wow, you guys remember the names way better than I do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're all right in a way. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I I think that, uh, like I said, there was an initial disappointment for me. It would be like, oh, this is going to be another story about a kid who's, you know, maladjusted and doesn't know how to talk to girls and that propels all his problems and he's going to conquer it. But that's really not the case. And that, that ends up not being the driving force. And uh, that was what I, I found refreshing, along with, you know, the insanely gorgeous animation and the music, all of the music. So much talk love about the music. music. <laughs> I, I, yes, we will talk a lot about the music because you know me, Simon. Uh, before we do, though, I did just want to mention one other thing about it. And because you talk about it, it, looks, it seems like um, for you, it felt like it was just going to be this really straightforward progression for me i felt i i felt like it was going to be a really straightforward two boys are are lost in a magical wood and they're trying to get back to the village and all of that and the structure of the story and i don't want to give away um too much about that about what information we find out in episode nine in case there are people listening who haven't had a chance to to seek out this this miniseries yet but the structure of it and the way that it that the writing you know the, the order of you know putting episode nine as episode nine really was effective for me in recontextualizing everything about what we had already seen uh, th- when you see a sort of magical kind of world and there's a talking bluebird and there's a there's a kid with a pointy hat and there's a, and a, and a cloak and especially given the, the way that it, you know, the, the story kind of storybook opening uh, of the animation and the animation style as well. We, at least as a viewer, I make cer- certain assumptions about who these main characters are. And so then to have the, the, the show take you by the hand with that and allow you to make those assumptions and not necessarily counteract them. And then, in episode nine, recontextualize everything else you've seen. It was just really effective. This has been a great year for uh, flashback episodes or episodes that take you out of the timeline. I, I've noticed. Has, has anyone else picked up on that trend this year? But uh, I'm, I'm especially thinking of Transparent also. Mm-hmm. But um, this, you're, you're absolutely right. The way that uh, the non this particular use of nonlinear storytelling is fascinating. Noel, did you have anything else you want to add to that, or shall we, we dive in with the music? No, no, go ahead. I'm eager to hear what you have to say about the music, Kate. Uh, well, I love it so <laughs> much. It's so pretty. Well, I, I knew I was going to like this miniseries, as I said last week on the podcast, from the opening seconds of it. Because it opens with that specific orchestration or the melody and a frog playing an upright piano. Not a grand piano, an upright, which is the correct choice for the type of, of music and storytelling they're doing and even just the way that the frog reaches up to the or whatever it is that top note and the, the, he just kind of like looks at the camera and moves his hand over and hits the last note uh, up, up the top register of the piano I was like oh I'm gonna love this <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean the, the what's great about, there's many things that are great about the music what I like is that there's a wonderful variety to the songwriting styles and the vocal approaches 
but all of it is appropriate for the timelessness of the setting. So I love that they were able to find a nice little uh, span of styles and voices and instrumentation without ever breaking character. Yeah, it's very, it's all very whimsical and nostalgic. They were definitely, the creator has talked about that they were going for the sound of nostalgic music. And it's cert that certainly is there. But like you say, there's, um, within that, there is such a range. I mean, and, and when you only have a 10 minute episode, I mean, this is, this is just under two hours, the whole running time. And there's 13 minutes of music. That is a lot of music for two hours. And they, they never really repeat themselves in that time. No. And there's, and I also like the way, yes, like, yeah, there's, there's a sense of nostalgia to a lot of it, but there's also every once in a while, just this slight undercurrent of creepiness and they never overplay it, but there's a wonderful sense of just this slight tinge of menace every once in a while. And that's just a, another great little note they sneak in, but they never overplay it. You never get the feeling that the stakes are that high, but every once in a while, it's just a little bit unsettling. Uh -huh. Simon, what's creepy about potatoes and molasses? Oh, no, obviously not potatoes and molasses. That's just totally <laughs> wonderful. I was going to say a hint. For me, there's a lot of creepy to the edge of the, this music. And, I mean, if you want a straight-up creepy song, you go for the Beast song. Oh, mm. Can we talk a little about Samuel fucking Raimi? So yeah. amazing. Just really, really quality stuff. Like his voice was just immediately recognizable and I just, I could not place it. And it wasn't because of his opera stuff because I don't think I had actually heard him ever sing before, but I just, I it just had this quality of, I've heard this before and it was so deep and rich and really, really for it gave a character that basically didn't have much of a body so much embodiment that it was just it was just great it was really pitch perfect casting there has to be another way no there is only me there is only my way there is only the forest and there is only surrender and there's also like we should mention the fact that there is great singing and great music and there's also great celebrity voice casting and yet here, the the twain do not meet. And that's just, can I, it's just a wonderful group of decisions happening here. Yes, that is a, I'm absolutely right there with you, Simon. For for me, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't get to the Beast's uh, first appearance and certainly first dialogue before I had glanced at the, some of the voice cast and saw, basically I saw that he was going to voice, that he, did voice the beast before I got to the beast's first uh, appearance and just kind of lost my shit. Because for those out there who don't know, Samuel Ramey is one of the great American uh, bass uh, opera singers. He is absolutely amazing. One of his most uh, significant roles is that of Mephistopheles. Um, he's just an amazing singer. I have had the honor of of playing with him in the past in an orchestra, and it was absolutely a transcendent musical experience for me. So granted, I have a completely different set of baggage I bring with Samuel Ramey's voice. Um, but it's even outside of that, like you said, Noel, it is such a it's such a wonderful bit of casting, first of all. Simon and I were glancing at the his credits and i believe this we were saying i think this is the first voiceover he's done certainly for animation certainly recently 
Um, but his voice is just so rich and, and because he has all of this, you know, he's 70, he's got a ridiculous career behind him. He teaches at uh, Roosevelt currently. Um, but he, this is a man who knows how to voice the beast. And, uh, aside from his, his singing, which that, you know, he pops up throughout if you're listening for it and is lovely, uh, just the gravitas that he lends to that role is, it's essential. And it's one of the highlights of this for me. Right. Cause the beast really doesn't talk that much. And the beast, I mean, there's really only one proper villain in this thing and it's the beast and you don't have much time to develop that as a character or even make much of an impression so good casting is really key and i should we should mention that the casting across the board is fantastic even though there's much more famous people present and often voice actors like to complain you know people who have been trained as voice actors people like john dimaggio uh, often complain about, you know, now they're casting celebrities in, in animated films based on their uh, recognizability, not because of, not because they're good voice actors. But I think they, they strike a nice balance here of people whose, whose voices are often instantly recognizable uh, versus character actors who I don't recall ever seeing in a cartoon before versus from people who are, for most people, total unknowns. I mean, you got Christopher Lloyd as the woodsman. I mean, that's the first, it, as soon as he speaks, it's like, oh, my, this is Christopher Lloyd. What great casting. But then one of the other uh, most entertaining performances for me is uh, is the teacher. Uh, and that's a, someone I was completely unfamiliar with. And then her, her boyfriend shows up and it's Thomas Lennon. You know, it's a really fun blending of all that. And I mean, even then, I mean, you still have recognizable actors who do a fair amount of voice work. Like you have Tim Curry playing Ani Whispers. Right. And I mean, he's a, he, that's basically all he does now is voice acting because he very rarely shows up on screen himself now. And then you have John Cleese pulling double duty as the um, Endicott and then as, uh, as um, Adelaide. Adelaide, yes. So, I mean, you have actors who are comfortable doing voice work and not actors who are showing up to a studio and getting a paycheck and standing and reading their lines in their pajamas, which is sometimes, to your point, about professional voice actors complaining about this sort of thing. And for the most part, I'm kind of in agreement with them because I don't really care for some when they do that. But in this case, I don't think that's an issue. I think you, they cast it really smartly and got people who were comfortable with the process. I, I will say at first, Elijah Wood was taking me out of it, out of it, because uh, his voice is so recognizable to me, especially having, you know, watched Wilfred just this year and, you know, and been thinking back on the year in TV. I, it was distracting for me for, for several of the early episodes and until the way that it comes together at the end, put a new context in it. And then I, I really enjoyed that casting. Um, whereas, you know, Melanie Linsky was just, I was just happy. <laughs> I was so happy to see her pop up and looking forward to her new show next year. Um, she, I, I need more Melanie Linsky on my TV, but, um, yeah, I, I get it, when, when the voices for the most part, when I am recognizing the, the famous voice, especially if it's someone who has, who is famous in a particular type of role, which I would say Elijah Wood at this point tends to be cast in very similar, at least the things I've seen him in have all been very similar kinds of roles. And so when at the start of this, it feels very much like a younger Wilfred, 
in this role, maybe a more stressed out, but th- that kind of thing. When when they're doing voice casting of a famous person to try to get you to associate the their persona with it, it's very distracting for me. And so the way that this develops over the course of the miniseries went away from that expectation, and so it ended up working for me. But um, yeah, that is certainly, I don't know where I'm going with this. That is something that normally does bother me, but here I think they do a good job. Yeah, I agree. And in terms of other things they do a good job with that I'm not sure we've really touched on, there is, I think, an almost perfect blend, and this is something we talk about when we talk about Adventure Time a lot. It's an almost perfect blend of this slight edge of maybe not quite sardonic humor, but slightly, um, slightly adolescenty humor that not, I mean, I wouldn't say, um, adult swim level, but just these little nods every once in a while to, uh, to a not kitty audience with the tone of the humor that is somehow really well matched with this sort of American Miyazaki, tone and visual approach and i'm not sure that i've seen that before Uh, and that was just i mean to me that was that was the main reason that i just couldn't not finish it in a night i was just like i i just every new installment seemed to add a little bit something a little bit of something to its arsenal and uh just just building up its tones that it could be wistful it could be sad it could be creepy it could be sort of almost just just this side of just slightly almost i don't want to say snarky but just like just like sort of knowing uh, i don't really know what the what the right way is to put it but it's mildly self-aware humor uh mixed with the sort of fantasism and i think it just nails that weird blend of tones i mean i i'll take it a step further word is just kind of bitchy <laughs> for mm. parts of this uh for stretches of it really and that definitely there's the the self-aware humor. I mean, one of the first things that happens in this miniseries is the bluebird starts talking to them and they're like, but birds can't talk. Their brains aren't big enough to talk. And so, you know, <laughs> like they're immediately drawing attention to themselves and, and, and letting the audience in on what kind of a, you know, what show this is going to be. And yeah, I think they do. I think I, I actually wonder if i'm sure i've heard plenty of stories of, of you know i've read online seeing enough reaction that kids are enjoying this when they when they watch it but this seems like the kind of thing that a, a kid will like um but the right adult watching it is gonna just fall in love because i know that i have well i think to your point simon about com- mentioning it in the vein of adventure time is that both Adventure Time, as well as Over the Garden Wall, treat its audience with respect. And it doesn't really want to acknowledge the fact that it's just for kids. And I'm doing air quotes. And so it behaves as if kids have an intellect, an emotional and mental intellect to engage a text and that they have digested enough of media to understand how these things kind of work. They know birds can't talk. So it's kind of weird that birds can't talk on a show, of regardless of it. So again, it calls attention to your idea of it, Kate. And I think that that's where that lies, is that it, it hails an entire audience really subtly, as opposed to wanting to like divide its attention that a lot of animated features kind of work in jokes for the adults, and this works in jokes for everyone that everyone can appreciate. And I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that it's also drawing from a kind of a folklorish type of thing, which were intended to be consumed by everyone. 
And I think that's where a lot of that attitude ends up coming from is the show's reliance on folk tales. Definitely. And, and as the, as the series progresses in these 10 episodes, really each, each one has a sort of distinct visual aesthetic. It's all, it all fits very much within the same, just the, the world that they've, that they're establishing with just even the opening credits and everything, the, the introduction, but you get like the anti whispers episode, all of a sudden it's the anti whispers. is just like straight out of Miyazaki as far as I'm concerned, but oh, then definitely. You compare that to the look of the, the frogs on the ferry boat or the, you know, the, the schoolyard with the animals that are that are in class. I mean, each of these is a very distinct sort of uh, look and a different piece of uh, American or world culture kind of all blending in. And as the series continues, they just find these different corners of the unknown that get added in. And with that visual aesthetic building and, and deepening the emotional levels of it just keep deepening as well yeah i mean i i can find nothing to to disagree with yet if i had to describe it to someone who had never seen it i would say it's sort of like uh like an american take on miyazaki if miyazaki listened to a lot of neutral milk hotel <laughs> um, and people who don't know what i'm talking about that's not going to make any sense but if you do i hope that it does <laughs> well i think the other thing um is that Especially around the time that School 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 Town Folly starts, which is the third episode, even though it's also kind of starting in Hard Times at the Huskin Bee, which is probably my favorite episode, along with the um, Frog Lullaby episode, which both of which I think are great, is that in the animation styling and the look of each episode, just it reminds me of a lot of different steps within American animation development. And so you you get this sense of not necessarily like Warner Brothers and Disney, though those kind of come in a little bit, but just the larger scope of where we go, like the whole Cloud City um, section in Babe in the Woods, just from the type of animation that they use to the fact that they often have an Irish shot which calls back to an older style of filmmaking, it looks like an old 1920s, 1930s animated short. And that's just really exciting for me because it like acknowledges all these little bits of animation history that they're incorporating into these other elements. And I thought that was one of the big things that I just really, really enjoyed about this. It was probably maybe my favorite thing about it was how they kind of acknowledged animation throughout the 10 episodes. I would just add like as much as I, I bring up Miyazaki, the, it also for some reason kind of reminds me of the, uh, the Amblin films a little bit like secret of Nim. Was that Amblin? Um, or am I getting my companies confused? Anyway, the non Disney slight ever so slightly more adult, uh, largely animal anthropomorphically centered, um, sort of story like maybe not as cartoonish as like Fievel Goes West but definitely I'm thinking of like Secret of Nim and maybe like sort like the slightly darker Disney 80s fair like the Black Cauldron or whatever just like it, it's it's definitely aimed at kids but it does have that slight that slight edge not so much that it could creep anyone out but just enough to to, to have that there as uh, as an undercurrent so that it's not just you know uh potatoes and molasses 
<laughs> well, I love that this is, we've referenced potatoes and molasses. I don't know why potatoes and molasses is the one that has, like, exploded for people. <laughs> Personally, I don't get it. But we'll, we'll, I'll ask you guys what your favorite song is in a little bit. But this is a, sh a show that has something like potatoes and molasses. And then also has just this really intense tragedy to so much of it, especially when you realize the context of everything that's going on. But even without that, that development later in the story, the tale of the woodsman and his daughter is heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't sugarcoat it at all, which not even a little, not even a little. And, uh, and it's got just the right, uh, note of closure on that at the end. Like I said, there's, there's just the right amount of darkness, like not enough to bum anyone out, but also not enough that it's copping out on anything. There was enough darkness in it that uh, I was watch. I finished watching it at like two in the morning or one, maybe one in the morning because I, I intended to watch some of it. And then, you know, like you guys said, I ended up watching all of it because I certainly wasn't going to stop for a pesky little thing, like having to go to, to sleep so I can get up to go to work. Uh, and Those things so, are overrated. D details, Absolutely. right? Yeah. So, so I finish at like one in the morning. I'm exhausted. It's everything is pitch black in my <laughs> in my house, and I'm just in there like, uh, I'm gonna need to have some sort of a light on. I need to play some solitaire and listen to a podcast because I cannot just drift off to sleep with the beast singing in my head. Well, not only that, but I mean, Kate, I was thinking about the I was thinking about the Wendigo from Hannibal the entire time the Beast was on screen. Yep, there's that. That's <laughs> there. That just made me then think of the Samuel Raimi voicing the Wendigo on Hannibal, which just took me to a happy ah! place. It's I know, great. right? <laughs> Isn't it great? Um, but the, the the power of the animation, even just they make a black with a circle of like blue and a circle of yellow and a circle of red terrifying yeah i mean i'm not as easily creeped out as you apparently but yeah. uh this I, is a I, no. I can't i can't disagree with you on that well and i think the other thing with us talking about just the right amount i think that goes again back to the idea of treating your audience with respect and also again that idea of folklore and fairy tales both of which tended to be very dark compared to how we've softened them and that idea of like also learning lessons about that's the other thing that I think kind of comes away with is that each of these episodes kind of have a little lesson to it and bringing up the woodsman. I mean, there's a very big lesson there about being willing to let go. And it feels very folklore in that if you don't let things go and then this is what happens to you. You end up chopping up woods. I did want to do a quick a quick spoiler zone. So if you haven't seen uh, Over the Garden Wall, go watch it. It's on CartoonNetwork.com. Apparently it's on demand. It's very available. And then come back because we're going to talk for just a couple minutes about everything else, the context of everything. So spoiler warning done. Okay. When it's when we realize that they've been they've been dying this whole time, it hit me like a punch to the gut. Uh, and especially with the way that they do first Wirt being turned into a tree and then especially when Greg is endangered. It just like I couldn't stop watching. I was like, No, Greg, no, what's happening? I just it's so masterfully uh handled that that turn. Yeah. It was just like I said, when we got to that 
revealing. I immediately got sucked back into that idea that they were in danger somehow. And I was just like, but, but I know that, what? No, what? No, save Greg. And Greg's so happy about not happy, but he's so willing to do this for his stepbrother. And I'm just like, Greg, no, (laughs) don't do this. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if it was a punch to the gut for me in the same way. It seemed You're just dead like inside, a, Simon. I know, <laughs> I, I know, I know. It's it's been it's been successfully argued all across this land, but um, but it's I mean, it it felt more like a natural progression to me. But definitely, it, it's it's definitely executed, and <laughs> no pun intended. And um, uh, I'm a t- I am a terrible human, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's that could have been so just hackneyed and just poorly transitioned into or out of and it's not and again just every every aspect of this production is just so considered and balanced and worked over but not overworked well and then you go back and you watch it again and you realize every time that Wirt starts spouting off in, in iambic mentameter there's clarinet underneath him and a moment like the the, the husker bee where they say um, aren't you here a little early? Yep. Oh, because... God. I just, I went nuts when I rewatched it and I just went, it doesn't seem like you're ready to join us just yet. And I just went, ah! They're dying, not dead. I mean, like, there's so many details like that, that when, when the reveal, it's, it's, that's, it's the thing that, all, that really satisfying clockwork pieces do if they're, if they wind up, you know, coming together where all these little details that, seemed to fit gain new depth and meaning as it comes together and that seems to be a popular method of storytelling for certain um on tv right now but rarely does the does it work on an emotional as well as intellectual level something i've talked about with doctor who a lot uh (laughs) so when it when we add that layer of oh they they're in the afterlife there this is their sort of progression through just figuring out if they're going to stay or if they're going to go back to their bodies and hopefully be saved. It it works with all these different threads and it just comes together in such a lovely way. I keep saying the same thing. <laughs> but that's because it's really good and you you need to say the same thing. So, so that people will watch it and take us seriously. The last thing I want to mention, because I couldn't mention it earlier, but so I had to mention it in this point section, there is poetry and clarinet on that tape. <laughs> So oh, wonderful. Uh, I d- I never made that connection. Well done over the garden wall. Well done. It's clearly now I need a second viewing. That line delivery is hilarious. Oh, yes. Yes it is. <laughs> just just the awareness that the guy it's like he can't help himself but profess his love in this way and then and then he just when, when he realizes she might actually listen to it. Oh man. Also just the the build up of um what is his name? Justin Dudebaker or something like that. Yeah, um, Barker. Thunderbird. He's so cool. And then we meet him. <laughs> He's a dweeb. <laughs> yeah, that this was great. He's dweeb who wouldn't get the girl at all. <laughs> I uh, I can't I can't pretend I didn't see myself a little bit in the mix taping. <laughs> yeah, there's the the yeah that's all that's all pretty fun. The whistle of the train is also uh, a present in the in the scoring and the sound uh sound effects throughout every time there's like a significant danger and there's recurring motifs of water and 
and swimming or, or, or you could also think of it as a baptism because of course they come out of the water and he's saving his brother and, and his first thought upon waking up is about his brother and all of that. So there's all of these other thematic elements there as well. But I just, I wanted to go to quickly to the clarinet and, and poetry thing. Cause I thought that was delightful. Do you guys have any other fa- favorite moments or lines from this? Um, I think one of my favorites was when they get into the second half of the mansion and Ward goes, does this room look different to you? It's like French Rococo. It doesn't really seem in line with Endicott's Georgian sensibilities. <laughs> and I just died. I almost fell off the couch because I was just like, it was so just out of nowhere. And then the follow-up was, should I, should I not know this stuff? And I'm just like, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> and I was still laughing because I noticed it. I was just like, this art, this, this design doesn't look quite right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, when you realize that he's, uh, right from our world, yeah. then he might actually have some basis for that. If he's random villager, like it seems like he is for the first yeah. part of it, then he wouldn't. Simon, any, any, uh, moments that stood out to you? Uh, not exactly moments. I just wanted to give a sh- couple shout outs to people we haven't mentioned yet. Um, Chris Isaac shows up, hmm. which was a great addition, and he gets a, a, a lovely little song to sing, which is probably my favorite of uh, of the bunch. Uh, I also wanted to give a shout out to Natasha Allegri, who uh, is one of the creatives uh, behind this, did some writing and probably some animation as well. The fact that she is involved in this and Adventure Time and being Puppycat, that lady is is gonna be she's gonna be giving us some goods next year. That's all I have to say. Uh, we've we've talked about Elijah Wood. We should also talk about Colin Dean, who is fantastic as Greg or, or Gregory. So you know, just the the right capturing of of innocence and confusion at times, and all it just comes together in such a nice way. I also do want to mention because we talked a little bit about Tim Curry being anti whispers. I believe this is his first project since his stroke, so it's great to see him. You know, back in projects that we can enjoy that he's well enough that he's able to continue to work. Yes. I'm glad he can still (laughs) curry favor. Uh, Okay. The last thing I want to ask you guys, uh, favorite song. What's the song that you can't get out of your head? Uh, well, I'm going to have to throw patient is the night in there because I've been putting together my year end mix and it's in there. So I've probably now heard it about 35 times. (laughs) Um, I can't get potatoes and molasses out of my head just because it's really, really catchy, but I don't particularly like it is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think my favorite song is bass is um the song from Lullaby and Frogland when mm. um Over the Garden Wall to sing. Yeah, Over the Garden Wall is just it's so good and it just comes at just the right time in that kind of transitionary moment of the narrative and that works really going over a garden wall at that point. And so is, um, so is Beatrice. They're going Mm -hmm. over a wall and it just comes over really nicely and it just works really well. And it sounds great too. Uh, the one, I think that if I, if, if more of it was featured, I probably would have it stuck in my head is the, um, uh, the lament, uh, a is for the apple that he gave to oh, me. Yes, that one. I I love that she goes through the entire alphabet. And apparently, if you listen to the the whole song, which I believe they did write, um, he's been gone for three days. That's her her no good man of hers has been gone for three days, and she's come up with a twenty six verse lament. That is delightful. Um, so, any final thoughts on over the garden wall besides? 
anybody still listening who hasn't seen it should see it. Correct. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. what they need to do, like, right now. It's on Cartoon Network's website. You can watch it for free. You can buy it on Amazon. You just need to watch this. Yeah. We've literally already droned on for almost half of its length. What are you still doing here? Yeah. I mean, it's almost as good as Too Many Cooks. What more could you want? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, this is a good... Uh, there's going to be lots of fodder for the end-of-year podcast. The music that goes between the segments, there's going to be lots of great options this year and this is certainly uh over the garden wall has plenty of those as well um so noel thank you so much for coming on to to talk with us about over the garden wall where can our listeners find you and your work online um i'm on twitter at noel rk and i'm on there entirely too much and you can find my television review writing over at tv.com and uh thank you so much noel for coming back on thank you everyone for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of the televerse Thank you.